Welcome to Church's Changing Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Estock, and today I have the honor of inviting to the conversation a superintendent from the North Lake District of the Northern Illinois Conference, Brittany Isaac. Brittany, welcome to the podcast today. Hi, Beth. Thanks. It's great to be here. We we go quite a ways back in our connection with one another. And just to introduce you to our audience today, can you tell me about your experience with planting new churches before you became a district superintendent? Yeah, absolutely. So I I had one appointment before I started in this current role, and it was to start the third site of Urban Village Church in Chicago. That's how we got to know each other. You're my coach through the majority of that time. Uh, do you want me to tell you a little bit about the church itself? Or Yeah, because I think it's um, really what we're going after today is a viewpoint from somebody that's planted churches to now being a district superintendent. And from that perspective, as you look out, you know, what are, what are you seeing? So Absolutely. yeah, tell us a little bit more about your experience as a church planter and what that was about. So I don't think I could have ever done it by myself. One of the great things about this church plant is that it was done in a team. So as I said, I started the third site. Co-founders Christian Kuhn and Trey Hall planted sites one and two and even helped me in planting the third site. This congregation, so they celebrated 10 years. the, The pandemic, we lose track of time, but I think it's about 12 years old now. And it stood firmly in the intersection of evangelicalism and LGBT inclusion. So 12, 13 years ago, that was an easy target demographic. There's nothing like targeting former evangelicals. You get people that know what tithing is. You get people that understand about putting in, they know the language of faith well. They're, they're not afraid to talk about evangelism, that kind of thing. And you get to do the fun work of deconstructing and reconstructing faith in a new way. So a lot of times we use the tagline of burned, bored, or brand new to the church. And to begin with, it was a lot of burned people, but we also picked up folks that were just kind of tired of church's status quo. And then once we had a solid base, we really started attracting brand new people to Christianity as well. So. Yes, it was fun. I I don't know. 13 years later, I I don't think that that's as easy of a demographic as it was at the time because so many churches are inclusive. Right. And that was before the landmark decision of gay marriage in the country. Yeah. So you were really working on the margins there and actually providing such important ministry to a marginalized people group. Right. Much more so then than than today. Right. And I don't mean to not uh, LGBT folks, especially in the UMC, there's still marginalization. Right. I am part of a covenant group of out. Well, no, not everybody's out, but LGBT DSs and now two bishops in our connection. And it's still hard. Right. Even this morning we were sharing about some of the struggles with that. So I don't mean to say that everything's wrapped up and great, but it's within a local congregational context, you'll find many open and affirming congregations. So then you were invited to become a district superintendent. Mm-hmm. And if you can go back to that time, what what were the big shifts for you in terms of 
perspective taking that was maybe jarring in that moment? One of the lines that I said for about a year when I first started, people would say, oh, how, how is this? What's it like? And I said, I went from a scrappy, innovative startup to a large declining institution, to middle management in a large declining institution that doesn't quite know what to do with itself. And I mean, I knew what I was getting into. I knew it was going to be the case, but it, that definitely still rings true. So, though I will say that my previous bishop did a great job of appointing a cabinet, the the DSs especially, that are young. Two two of the five superintendents are church planters. And so there's a, a real sense of experimentation within the confines of the structure. You know, I'm really curious, Brittany, because, you know, you say that you, 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 you're on a cabinet that has some history of starting new churches, but yet when you enter into that structure, it's like you're a salmon swimming upstream. So if you could just share with us from your perspective now as DS that you have this passion with other people on the cabinet for starting new things. What are you seeing are the barriers right now institutionally to support the innovation that's called for today? That's a great question. There's a lot of barriers. I, if I could look at our Board of Ordained Ministry for a moment, uh, and I mean this generally speaking, not any particular conferences, Board of Ordained Ministry. Several years ago, I think General Conference tried to tackle innovation by coming up with something called a fruitfulness project, but I don't think it's actually maybe doing what we hoped for it to do, but we have like this requirement for ordination that you have to create a Bible study. And actually the last bubble study I created was probably the one I had to do for ordination because there's just not like, there's a lot of great curriculum out there. Why would I spend my time? creating a Bible study, but we don't measure or have a way to talk about pastor's ability to create an environment where there's more professions of faith, where we have just people coming into faith, maybe for the first time. We don't, we don't measure that or ask that as a requirement for ordination. And so we end up with a system of people who know how to lead really good Bible studies, but they don't know what it means to be innovative in ministry. They don't often, we, we ask for theological concepts, but we don't often ask people to translate that into the language of, of everyday life. I, I'm always reminded of the Francis Spufford definition of sin. Have you heard that? No, share with us. So he's a he's a British writer. And, you know, what do we say in church? Sin is missing the mark. It's turning away from God, whatever. He says it's the human propensity to F things up. <laughs> but, you know, I you say that and people are like, yeah, I, I yes, I get that. Right. So with all of our best intentions. Yes, with all of our best intentions. Absolutely. And then, you know, when you say something like that, then you can go into 
you know, Paul's writing of saying, why do I do the things that I do when I do, I know that I don't want to do them and yet I do them. So we need pastors. So from a recruitment standpoint, we're not measuring and assessing the things that are going to help people come into faith in new and relevant ways. We're still feeding a system with people that the system created. So we have to just really think about that in new ways. The other thing is, I'm sorry, it's a lot about board of boarding ministry because that's where our leadership comes from primarily, right? Mm-hmm. The other thing I see, and I think the Holy Spirit is leading in this, we need folks that are committed to bivocational ministry. I do think mm-hmm. that there will certainly be churches that are full-time clergy serving, probably more like hub regional center churches, but there's going to be a lot of folks that are hustling while they're doing, actually, they're probably hustling in ministry and hustling in another job. And just even our system, you know, you need two years of full-time service to get ordained. (laughs) So it doesn't, and yet I have candidates in ministry right now that are like, Brittany, I really feel called to, to, do this as well as ministry, but it doesn't seem like there's a place for me if I want to get ordained. So I think we need to find ways. That's what I mean by the spirits leading, right? People are already sensing that, but our system hasn't caught up with it yet. Yeah. So how do how does one at that DS level chunk away at those systemic barriers to supporting innovative people doing innovative work? I think that it's kind of knowing what the system requires and then trying to think of creative ways to meet the spirit of that sometimes or meet it fully, but with other ideas. So the two years of full-time service, we might be able to say like, or it's equivalent. Now, that being said, I don't think a pastor serving a quarter time should have to serve eight years before they could consider being ordained, right? There's got to be that also sounds ridiculous. So yeah, just, just trying to figure out creative ways. Uh, I think we have to figure out a way to also, and I'm playing with this right now in my district, how do we play with other denominations in a way that we can still retain our Wesleyan identity while also cooperating? So I don't know the answer to that, but I have a church right now that is sharing their space with a Lutheran church. And how do we, you know, they do some maybe youth group stuff together, but they retain some other things that are distinctly Lutheran and United Methodist. Yeah, I don't know. So as you kind of look out on the landscape now from your perspective as a DS, you know, when you started, there was this concept of, okay, you plant a church and the church has a worship service on a Sunday morning and it kind of follows that inherited church model, but it's just new and it might be to a new people group. A lot has changed in the past, you know, six, seven years. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, what we're seeing is this like 2.0 version of innovation that might not look necessarily like that inherited church model. So, what are you seeing in your role as DS and how can cabinets or our cabinets supporting that kind of innovation as well? Yeah. So I will say that I'm in my fifth year and I created some five-year goals. I look at them 
pretty regularly and then feel like I'm not quite there yet. And I only have six months left, but, (laughs) (laughs) but one of the goals was to have 10 new faith communities in my district. And I wrote that goal with the idea that it would look a lot like the Sunday morning thing. But what I'm discovering is it's not. Some, some of them are Sunday morning. So let me give you a couple of examples. Most of them are happening alongside another healthier congregation. Mm-hmm. So I had a church, River Forest United Methodist Church, and they were pulling money from their endowment every year to pay a full-time pastor for 20 people in worship. And I said, is this God's dream for you all to fund a slow leak year after year? And they were open. So I appointed actually the founding lead pastor from Urban Village halftime to the congregation with the idea that he would explore starting a new site there of Urban Village. And what's happened is that's their new site. And it was a little odd because they had Urban Village had to discern, do we want to be in a suburb? Because the name is Urban. (laughs) And then is this the suburb? Is this the right place? So But what's essentially happened is they did a pop-up Sunday morning service that now is basically merged with the River Forest service. So they identify as both River Forest, UMC, and Urban Village West, but they meet at the same time. So it's kind of like I we they launched a new faith community, but within the context of what was that? So so there's not like a net one. Because the river forest, thing, if, if that makes sense, it's kind of a funky thing, mm-hmm. but it's something new. And, you know, the folks from river forest are, I had their church conference a couple of weeks ago. They're in tears. They're like, there's so many kids here. There's so many, like there's life in this church. So that's one example. Another example is out in Franklin park, a predominantly white congregation in a Spanish speaking neighborhood. And the pastor came there and stuck with the 930 white service called Franklin Park, First United Methodist Church. And then he created a new service, Living Waters, that, that's Spanish-speaking, that meets in the afternoon. And then another one that meets even later. So again, within the context of a, a hub or a regional church. I I will say the one new faith community that kind of launched on its own is probably going to close. So I think also out of this team ministry is really important, having community of people. So as a DS to, to make sure that people aren't going at it alone, but have, and I'm not talking about a launch team, have people that are holding them accountable that are there for ideation however that looks and it sounds like this particular church the first one that you talked about there has to be a sense of adaptability flexibility openness cultural openness Mm -hmm. to something new Mm -hmm. and i mean just to give all the credit to christian kuhn he's a stellar pastor 
I didn't have to give him much support. Like he could work his magic. He knew how to work with existing congregations. He knew he's done great work of blending those, those two together while also helping the current, con- the, the initial congregation that was there do some grief work around change of worship mm. style and, and that sort of thing. And, and being able to lift up some of the mission and service that this congregation has done faithfully for decades which was a model for this newer faith community that that doesn't have the deep roots of service within that area. So one thing that you've shared with us today is this sense of support, teamwork, doing that discernment of, okay, if we're going to invest in something new, let's make sure that there's there's a scaffolding around it. Absolutely. What other new things are you discovering to help develop innovative ministry? So I have another church that they they sold their building and they relocated a mile and a half west, which in the city is a long way. So they're in a new neighborhood. They bought a thrift store hmm. and they worship once a month in a bar. So first of all, this is a church that's in a co-op. So again, that team ministry piece. But I'm really enjoying hearing and seeing how their connections within that thrift store are giving them street cred within the community and they're building a reputation within that community that they, that they care for the neighborhood. They even, they changed their name as a church to be called Big Shoulders Church, which is from the poem about Chicago, but it, it also speaks to who they want to be a church of big shoulders for that neighborhood. And are you finding that now you know, seven, eight years later that there is more of a sense of, oh yeah, we we need to support these kind of efforts in the hierarchy that don't necessarily look like church? Yeah. So just an example from a hierarchy standpoint with this, with this story, they sold their building. So those are capital funds and to purchase a new building, the Typically, we would think it would be a new church, but they used some of those capital funds to buy this thrift store. So that took a yes from the district building and location to see that vision and to understand that this is church too. And from the cabinet, I guess technically it didn't need a yes from that cabinet, but for the cabinet to say, yes, absolutely, this sounds like a good investment and something to to experiment with. Any other things that as you look out from your perspective, say, oh, yes, in order for there to be successful innovation, we need to make sure that this piece is in place. Permission to fail. Talk about that. We are in a very, very different landscape, and it's going to involve us trying things that we just we can't know the outcome, even as much. I, I am not a person that has to get all the details aligned before I try something. And there are people that do that, but even in doing that, you can't always predict what's going to happen. So I think when you give permission to fail, it allows us to strive big. And I think when you create a culture like that, it also allows you the opportunity to assess what happened and then learn and and maybe try something very different but better the next time around. 
So this thrift store, I think we're two years in, it seems to be going okay, but it might be a failure. It might. You know, I've got another church that I'm looking at creating an urban retreat center in. That might fail big too, but we won't know until we try. Yeah, so we, if we don't try new things, the church is already eroding as we speak. Mm-hmm. If we don't try new things, then we can just sit back and watch the erosion happen and be sad it's gone. Or we could say, now what? Well, I love that you are there advocating for the now what. (laughs) So if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing, and I'm going to talk system now Mm -hmm. about the structure of organized church, what would that be if, if you were going to say, yeah, if we could just change this, much more innovation could happen? The end of guaranteed appointments. Oh, let's get into that, Brittany. I'm meddling. (laughs) I understand in some ways why it was created from what I understand historically related to some different people groups that were allowed to be ordained. There were bishops that said they won't get an appointment. So I can understand the need for guaranteed appointments. But it, it becomes difficult to, I'm going to be really frank, there are a handful of pastors that I'm sure every cabinet in every conference doesn't know what to do with. And you know that they're going to kill a church that you get, that you send them to. And there is a way to, to handle that, but you have to have a board of ordained ministry that's willing to to do that, but when you have a system of people that are on the board of ordained ministry that also benefit from guaranteed appointments, there can be a real hesitancy to hold people accountable for their inability to to do what needs to be done. I think we're in a a landscape where there are a lot. I, I I'm probably relatively young in ministry. I'm not officially a young adult still, but. I already feel irrelevant in many ways because the landscape is changing so much. And I came from a scrappy church startup. So that being said, I think there's a lot of people that are, they only know how to play church one way. And I think Mm -hmm. that we have to gracefully. So there's just the like completely incompetent people, right? (laughs) Set those aside. I think there's a lot of folks that know how to play church one way and things are changing so quickly that they are just, they're drowning. And, you know, my, my job is to help. My job is to have honest conversations with, with some of those folks to say, is this the right place for you? It's been good. And is there another place of ministry that your gifts might be used? Yeah. And then we're getting into this whole other you know, it's like a scaffolding, isn't it? That you have guaranteed appointment, you have a parsonage, and then that, you know, the appointment goes away, the housing goes away, and then we're just operating out of fear, mm-hmm. you know, and just holding on for dear life for what was yeah. and not what is or could be. Right. Right. Yeah. 
Wow. So what would you like churches and pastors to understand about the changing cultural landscape? Well, I think the first thing is to actually live with hope into the promise of resurrection. I mean, that is what we believe after all, to to live into that, to let what is old pass away and we can believe it, but to have faith that the church is not dead. It's just different from what we know and what we remember. I've, I've spoken a lot to our churches about we're in Babylon now and we can't go back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, yeah. even if we do go back, it's not there anymore. It's not how we remember it. And that's sad. I'm, I have to work hard. It, it, it's hard for me to sit with people in that grief because I do think if we look ahead, God is still working and moving. And that, that is far more exciting to me than to look back at all the things and grieve it. That might be why I'm a church planter, right? Uh, let's go forward. But yeah, I think if, if churches and pastors could step boldly into that new direction, not knowing where the path actually might go, but knowing that God is faithful to it, we could have a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, to kind of be like Jeremiah and buy the piece of property. Yeah, yeah. In, in enemy territory. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and plant gardens. Yeah. And plant gardens. That's right. What words of wisdom do you have for folks that might be discerning a call in Babylon? (laughs) Well, I think the first thing that I would say with that is to those that would say they're not discerning a call, I would say, why don't you keep listening? Because I'm pretty sure God is not calling you to maintain the status quo. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope everyone is discerning a call in Babylon. But yeah, to those that are are there, I already, I mean, I already said this, but find people, find community to be with you. Jesus sent people two by two. Uh, we weren't alone. We worship a Trinitarian God that finds community in in itself. It's a it's lonely work, and you need people. So, even if it's something as loose as a co op where the pastors get together, but you need people for the community and and also I think for the accountability. And then finally just be faithful to the calling that you are discerning. And how does that, how does that discernment and that call show up for you? Well, we've talked about this before, Beth. Uh, Usually it's a, (laughs) it's a restlessness for me. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not so much, a complete plan and vision, but just a sense of restlessness that where I am is fine and good. And there's something more coming, even if I don't know exactly what it is. So yeah. So to then think about what are the things that I think God is wanting or desiring to do within me? Where would I find joy? Where where does the world need something? So, yeah. I love that you brought up this sense of holy agitation, this restlessness. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit has to get our attention somehow. And that can be painful. That can be, oh my gosh, there must be something wrong with me. 
it's not working anymore. You know, maybe I'm a loser. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we tr- tend to internalize that restlessness, but it really can be holy agitation. The spirit saying, come on, wake up. Yeah, it's it's a little uncomfortable right now. So it's time to take action. It's time to it's time to move. It's time to to, to take that next hero's journey. Yeah, and I think all of us, I mean, if if nothing else, the pandemic has agitated us. Yeah. And in the way that church is doing things. So I remember back in March saying, I think this is I think this is forever going to change the way that we do church and the churches that were crumbling are going to fall off the cliff. Like it's, there's no saving them and the churches that were doing well, they will accelerate and all of us will have been, we will all have moved into a new time in the life of the church universal. Are you finding that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Fresh Expressions, for example, has been around for for quite a long time, decades in Great Britain. But I think that within my congregations, they're just now paying attention to it, right? And seeing, oh, there's new ways of doing things. Oh, discipleship can happen in a variety of places. It doesn't have to be during Sunday school on a Sunday morning. So I... Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of hopefulness and churches are, many of them are open to experimenting with, with new ways of doing things. Mm, that's, that's really beautiful to hear, Brittany, because you got, you're, you're located like in the, in, the, in the depths of the Midwest, you know, the breadbasket of Methodism. <laughs> yes, but also, I mean, I, and I know you said this, and and we're also an urban life. A lot of half of my half of my district is in the city proper, and it's it's rough out there. Mm-hmm. Which gets back to the need to be able to speak the language of faith in culturally relevant ways, mm-hmm. and to do things in the community. Just as an example, when I was serving in the parish, so we were just a little north of Boys Town. And there was a bar that once a month did, it was called Speaking Out Loud or something like that. And it was basically people's coming out stories. And without any organization by me at all, I didn't even know about it at first. All of my LGBTQ folks started going there and giving their coming out story. And all of it included like trauma difficulty with the church and they all mentioned urban village church. Wow. So that was, and then people started coming. Right. And, and again, that's the model of coming on Sunday. So, uh, but, but that was a vehicle of evangelism outside of the church that was really organic and very powerful. And so I think our church of the future is going to have more of that. Yeah, and I would say that that was church. Exactly. Even though it was organized by the bar. And they didn't yeah. think it was church. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, thank you, Brittany, for sharing your gems of wisdom from your perspective as a DS in Northern Illinois Conference. Thank you. I would like for you to, as we go out, just give a blessing 
advice for these, you know, this changing cultural landscape and for people that find themselves in Babylon, but are being agitated by the Holy Spirit? So go forth on this quest while you are looking back at Babylon with longing, with grief, maybe with a desire to be done with or with a thanksgiving that it's done. (laughs) Looking back at Jerusalem, I'm sorry. Go forth into this new city of Babylon to make a place to share the love of God, to witness to all that is good in this world. Go forth with joy. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Church is Changing Podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.